Good morning, everyone. Morning. You ever just have a moment where you're doing some mundane chore, maybe an everyday task, and it hits you in a different way? It just feels so profound for some reason. The other night I was trying to get caught up on some dishes, and this analogy is for all of you who don't own a dishwasher, you'll understand. I'm trying to get caught up on some dishes, and I'm putting soap on the sponge, and I start scrubbing, and then I hold the sponge, and I look at it, and I think, you and me, we're the same. Me and this sponge. The more I use you, the dirtier you get, and I have to come back to the soap. Maybe you're already hearing where I'm going with this, right? And when I put you in the water, you absorb it right up. Wherever I leave you, that's kind of what you take in. The parallels are already pretty quick. It's already pretty easy to connect the dots. We're like sponges. Where we put ourselves, where we put ourselves at rest, or where we leave ourselves, we take in that environment. And then if someone comes along and gives us a squeeze, that's what comes out of us. We absorb what we immerse ourselves in, and then when we're squeezed, that's what comes out. Today we're really going to be examining that. On one hand, all analogies break down. If we keep going with the sponge metaphor here, it, it's, gonna, it's not going to work. But I really like to stretch analogies as far as they'll go. Uh, I have a bad habit of doing that. So if it starts breaking down, you know, bear with me. You got to put new soap on that sponge once in a while. If you don't, it runs out. The sponge loses its usefulness. You got to lather it back up and get right back to work. So too are we with the word. Today is going to be such a Bible-heavy day. We are going to read so much out of this book. I had a hard time determining what we're putting up on the screen and what we're just going to look in the Bible for, and we're going to have to go quick in some moments. So just to get you all good to go as we're setting up today, if you want to grab a pew Bible to keep up, we are on page 218, Judges chapter 10, 11, and 12. We're going to we're going to go through quite a bit. Some areas we're going to go fast, and some we're going to really slow down and sink our teeth into it, okay? I'm going to also jump around a bit to other parts of the Bible. So if you want to put your thumb in page 218 or follow along in your own Bibles, we're going to all try to stay on the same page together. How great is it that we can have a Bible-heavy day, right? Let's really, really unpack it. When I was thinking about the book of Judges in preparation, a story kept coming back to me. Back when I was doing master's work down in Kentucky, I had an Old Testament professor. Uh, he did his dissertation on judges. He examined the role of the judges, various tropes that they had that told us about who God is and who we are. And he actually really camped on Ahud, the judge we talked about in here not too long ago. He got to sharing with us his writing and how he spent somewhere around three or four years of his life almost only reading judges apart what he heard from church. He explained that by the end of his writing, as happy as he was, you know, to finish a project like that, he was depressed. He felt such a need for the gospel that he hadn't felt since, in his words, the time of his conversion. He camped in judges for so long and put his spiritual sponge into that text and absorbed the depravity, the isolation in it. And he felt thirsty. 
he defined the problem of judges as a lawless time for Israel. A lawless time. Think about it. They did whatever seemed right. They did whatever they wanted in their, in their own eyes. They did evil, as we're going to see tonight. To do what you want to do, to do what you think is right in your own eyes, is contrary to Scripture's law. Law is a gift to us to help align our spirits with what God says is right and how we should conduct ourselves with each other and how we can relate to God better. Law is so important. So his conversation on that, his identification of judges as a lawless time for Israel played a small role in my own interests. When I got to doing my own kind of research, I decided I, I want to know about law. That's the beauty of Scripture. Scripture so often points out what's missing and then tells us how to fix it. What's missing? Oh, and here's what is missing right here. Take a look. So that's what I wanted to do. And I want to share a little bit of that with you today. Pardon me if I get a little bit excited. We're going to go quick on this. But law is a big deal. Okay? Law is a big deal. And as we're going to see, Jephthah didn't know a whole lot about it. He just didn't. What is law? Well, I keep throwing that around, and that, that word has so much baggage. Law is another word for Torah. And Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Law, therefore, is a reference to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Law is a hard word to swallow in today's culture. It has negative connotations. It, it feels legalistic, like do this or else, or you better respect this rule or you might not be a good Christian. Friends, that's not what law is meant to be. Law is a list of laws, yes, but law is also stories, it's poems, it's expression, it's Torah. Did you know Torah means instruction? That's what Torah means. Torah means instruction. How can it help? How can it guide you in the ways of the Lord? When you approach Torah and you ask, what specifically do I need to do with this? That's not a bad question, but I would challenge you next time you pop open Torah, especially the weird parts like in Leviticus. Instead, ask, what is this telling me about God? What is God trying to do with this? Torah was meant to be read that way. Torah was meant to be read like that. Try asking that question sometime. I don't want to overshadow the weird parts. I mentioned Leviticus a second ago. Yes, uh, Exodus specifically talks about boiling a goat in its mother's milk. What's going on with that? Uh, we get textile laws, food laws. There are some strange things because that was written in a different time. And there are ways we can go about understanding that. But we start those ways with asking who God is. And we end up seeing why that was written. I want to point out a little bit of what Scripture says about the law, okay? I want to really drive home why this is important. Because if one of the big problems of judges is that it's a lawless time, we need to get an understanding of how good the law is. If we understand how good the law is, we can understand how bad the time of the judges was. It's a, a comparison. What does scripture say? 
Psalms. How I love your instruction. Remember, Torah means instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your command makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. It goes on. Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Is scripture making a good case so far as to, you know, kind of sitting in the law? Let's put our sponges in that for a moment. New Testament has some things to say too. John 14, 15, this is more pointed. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James 1, 22, but be doers of the word and not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, be active, treasure it, put it in your heart, meditate on it, do it. And do it out of love. If that isn't enough, Christ has some things to say about it too. You can almost never talk about law and not bring up this passage. It's so important. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. That's Christ. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Christ said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then we hear this bottom part. All of the law and the prophets, all of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. It's starting to sound more and more like the law is an important component to understanding some of this stuff. If judges is getting this wrong, It's no wonder, it's no wonder the book was written the way it was. Did you know Christ was quoting the law when he said that? Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then loving your neighbor as yourself, look no further than Leviticus. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. got to move on but I think this makes a good case law is important pocket that for now we're gonna we're gonna start looking into the story of Jephthah and how he looked at law let's take a look so if you if you put your finger in your bible page 218 this is one segment I'm going to read parts to you and we're going to see what's going on here we've gone through seven judges so far in this series and now we're unpacking Jephthah. Let's see what the situation is like. Let's, let's immerse ourselves in it. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of Am- the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. They shattered and crushed the Israelites that year. And for 18 years, they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. I'm going to go down to verse 11. The Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. 
Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. But the Israelites said, we have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord. And he became weary of Israel's misery. The Ammonites were called together, and they camped in Gilead. So the Israelites assembled and camped, camped at Mitzpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, Which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of the inhabitants of Gilead. The stage is set. They need someone. They need someone to jump on board quick. This Ammonite presence is a problem. We want to look at Jephthah today in four different ways. Do you know what Jephthah means? His name Jephthah means one who opens his mouth. I like to paraphrase it. One who talks too much. He can't keep his mouth shut. He values what he has to say a little too much. As such, this Jephthah passage has four big moments where Jephthah does just that. He opens his mouth. So there are four different ways to look at it. Here we have what we just read, Judges 10, 17 to 18. Which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. A quick word about Jephthah. Uh, Trinity's professor, uh, Dr. Younger, very influential person for me, uh, gives a good commentary on what's happening here. He says, in light of the values of the law, or Torah, Jephthah will not be a fitting judge for what they're looking for here. And yet, that seems to be the point. With each round of apostasy, the nation seems to plunge deeper. God's response is more serious, and the judge for the nation is even less qualified than the previous there is a relationship between the nation's unfaithfulness to the law and the quality of the judge raised up for them. In other words, the elders are going to get what they're asking for. So as we look at Jephthah and what they're looking for here, we've got to ask, is he qualified? Have you ever had a conversation with someone where they start by saying something really positive, but... As they talk, you sense a, a but coming. They're saying something really nice, maybe about you or about something else, and their tone is <laughs> leading up to a, a, a but. <laughs> if you've ever had a job interview, you, you know what I'm talking about. I think you're a great candidate, <laughs> and your qualifications are impressive, but you're just not the one we're looking for right now. At first glance, Jephthah seems to be the right guy for this job. Take a look. Judges 11, 1 through 3. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. Hey, sounds like they need this guy, right? The Ammonites are a big threat. They're coming, all, coming along. The Israelites need a valiant warrior. Oh, and even better, he's a Gileadite. He's one of them. Surely the right guy for the job, right? Well, here's the but. But he was the son of a prostitute. 
and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. Uh-oh. We have a bit of an issue here. The elders of the Israelites are desperately needing a mighty warrior from among them to deal with this threat. And Jephthah comes to mind. He's a mighty warrior. He's out there showing off. He has his raids going, and he's managed to band together some ruffians. Uh, maybe he's the guy. So the elders go to him. Oh, but the problem is they tossed him out of Israel a long time ago. The conversation that they have is pretty shocking. Let's take a look. We just read the, the ending of chapter 10. Let's see what goes on here with the elders. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered Jephthah, that's true. But now we turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. What's going on here? Do you see a parallel? The Lord and the Israelites talked just previous to this, and now the elders are talking with Jephthah. There's a commonality at the front. The Ammonite oppression. This is what sparks both conversations. On one hand, Israel appeals to the Lord, and on this hand, the elders appeal to Jephthah. The Lord retorts sarcastically. Jephthah retorts sarcastically. Israel repeats the appeal. No, Lord, please save us. And we see here, the elders repeat the appeal. So far, the conversation's about the same, but then we hit this big point of divergence. The Lord refuses to be used, but Jephthah seizes the moment opportunistically. Already, at the very front of this, there's a divide. Jephthah and the Lord aren't seeing the situation the same way. This conversation between the elders and Jephthah is shockingly reminiscent of, Ab of uh, Abimelech's poem from before. Here, the Israelites are desperate and turning to anyone they can to quickly solve their situation, even a bramble, as mentioned earlier in Abimelech's poem. Notice here, like with Abimelech, the Lord is not raising up Jephthah. This is a human development. While we can see that the Lord's name is used as a witness in this passage, the Lord actually is not the one that raises Jephthah up. It's people. It's the elders. The elders are bargaining for a leader just like themselves. Just as they are willing to take whoever and whatever by any means to pursue a private agenda, we're going to see here in a minute that Jephthah has no issue doing the same. Who do the elders think they are right now? They are doing the job that the Lord is supposed to do and that he has done. But it doesn't stop here. Jephthah opens his mouth again. We get to Jephthah versus the Ammonite king. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites asking, what do you have against me that you have come to fight me in my land? 
the king of the Ammonites said to to Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Here's another quick snippet. Jephthah's really quick to respond to this, and he has a lot to say, too. We have a classic ancient dispute of land. Jephthah's saying, why are you fighting us on our land? And the Ammonite king is saying, oh, it's not your land, it's, it's our land. When you guys came out of Egypt, you took it from us. Boy, does Jephthah get into that. We see here uh, in 14 to 27, a letter he gives to the Ammonite king. And I'm gonna highlight just a few snippets of this. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell him, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king saying, please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. The verses to come continue the story. Time and time again, Jephthah is recounting Israel's history. We came here, we did this. We came here, we did this. We appealed to this king. We fought this king. And the Lord gave us victory. So therefore, Ammonite king, this is not your land. Here's our history. And to Jephthah's credit, this is a great argument. He's actually citing Numbers 20 to 24 and Deuteronomy 2 through 3, quite accurately. He's recounting the history of Israel and why the land is theirs. On one hand, this is good for Jephthah to know and for him to communicate. On the other hand, it is also convenient for him to know. We're going to get into that. At any rate, the message is clear. Just as the Lord gave Israel victory in the past, so too will he give Israel victory in the present against the Ammonites. Once again, we are inclined to think, oh, so far so good. Maybe Jephthah is the man for the job, right? He, he's a mighty warrior. He knows the history, and he's proving it to this Ammonite king. He's going to do, do the job. There's a big issue, though. We keep reading in his letter starting in verse 23. As I read this next part, pay special attention to what Jephthah says. Let's see if you can identify where he messes up. Verse 23. The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, and will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God, Kamosh, conquers for you? And we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us. Now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? And then I'm going to go to verse 28. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. Did you hear the tone? Did you hear what Jephthah said? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God, Kamosh, conquers for you, and we can have whatever the Lord, our God, conquers for us. Do you hear what's happening here? All of a sudden, the Israelite God, Yahweh, the Lord, has been demoted to one of the many other ancient pagan deities. Yahweh may be Jephthah's God, and he acknowledges that, 
But Chemosh is the Ammonite king's god, so he should also acknowledge that, right? Jephthah's argument here is extremely logical. It's appealing to the Ammonite king. He is talking in the way of the ancients. This is the kind of argument that they want to make at that time. Isn't it our rule that we get whatever our God gives to us and you get whatever your God gives to you? But this is a compromise. Jephthah appears to be using only logic. You know, people must accept the will of their deity, right? But he makes the grave mistake of identifying his faith in the Lord with the practices of the surrounding nations rather than the ideals found in Torah. Let me, let me uh, read it to you. Deuteronomy 2.19 actually says, When you get close to the Ammonites, don't show any hostility to them or provoke them, for I will not give you any of the Ammonites' land as a possession. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Deuteronomy makes it clear. The Lord didn't just give Israel her land, but the Lord also designated land for the surrounding nations too. Not Chemosh or any other ancient deity. Jephthah forgets that his God is sovereign over all, not just over Israel. He demotes God to being a regional deity and appeals to the regional deity elsewhere. What a tragic mistake. Friends, emotion, logic, and articulation are no substitutes for truth. Theological accuracy is important. What we think about God's character is important. Wrong thinking about God is reprehensible. The mistake that Jephthah makes here, equating the God of the Bible with the God of other nations, is an error that is easily repeated today. If we accept this as our reality, perhaps in the name of appeasement, the door is flung open for the endorsement of wrong theological practices. If in our own practices, with, within, or without the church, we demote our God, we're flinging the door open for wrong theological practices. We're inviting trouble. And that's what Jephthah does. We get to the third moment he opened his mouth, and boy, is this one a doozy. Jephthah versus his daughter. At this point, we actually get to see the Lord participate. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. It's about time, right? <laughs> the Lord hasn't done anything with Jephthah up to, up to this point, but finally, we're getting the big moment. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah. We've seen this with other judges, and whenever this happens, there's victory, there's triumph. It's the Lord's day. So finally, we get to the point here. We're enough listening to Jephthah. Now we listen to the Lord. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Uh, a quick note, it's important to, to say here that this doesn't mean that the Lord approves of how Jephthah's handled anything. It also doesn't mean that the Lord has taken the reins away from Jephthah. What this phrase means is that the Lord is empowering Jephthah to do the will of the Lord. And in this case, it's the will of the Lord to protect his people from the Ammonites. That is all this means. The Lord is not approving of Jephthah. He's not removing Jephthah. 
he's working through Jephthah for his will, not Jephthah's. So keep that in mind. Let's take a look at what happens next. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mitzvah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mitzvah of Gilead. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. It's about time, right? The Lord came in. He delivered the Ammonites to Jephthah. There's actually more here. These four uh, phrases, these four verbs, traveled through, traveled through, crossed over, crossed over. This is a classic biblical formula that dictates the Lord is moving. Oftentimes, whenever the Spirit is said to be passing through, traversing over, crossing over, uh, especially in succession like this, it is victory language. It is the Bible saying, guess what? The Lord is acting, and it's happening now, and it's happening quick. Little do you know, right now I'm testing you. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see I skipped a couple verses. Let's put them back in. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mitzvah of Gilead. Oh, stop the victory narrative. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Okay, continue the victory narrative. He crossed over to the Ammonites. What an insertion. The classic narrative that signals the Lord's victory is tragically interrupted. Some go as far as to say that Jephthah's insertion here replaces the climax that was supposed to happen. I mean, think about it. If this wasn't in the middle, the story could have ended there. Okay, victory. The Ammonites have been defeated. The Lord pulled through. But since Jephthah put this strange, unnecessary vow in the middle, the story must go on. Because now we have to see the vow to conclusion. I also want to add, uh, I put uh, a note here for whoever. Um, our translation says whoever, but I want to point out that uh, many other translations also say whatever. Um, the word can be used for both. Uh, so there's a chance Jephthah didn't think about sacrificing a human. Um, his surprise, we're going to see in a moment, confirms that. But also it was typical of that time period, the four-room house they used to live in in that area did often contain animals. That was a very common practice. Um, so we can't say for sure whether or not Jephthah meant to say human, a person. It's likely anything that comes out, and he may have been thinking of an animal. Uh, we're going to see some light shed on that here in a second. But let's, let's see this to the end. Let's read the next few verses. And as I read this, Listen intently to the, to the drama of it, to the pain of it. Oh, I was turned elsewhere. I need to head on back. There we go. When Jephthah went to his home in Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, no. Not my daughter. You have devastated me. 
You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. I cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Do you hear the tragedy there? His one daughter, his only daughter. He had no other sons or daughters apart from her. There's not a mention of his wife either. Who's to say if she's still alive? We don't know. He surely didn't expect to see his daughter come out of the house that moment. And what's worse, he makes it about himself again. He opens his mouth again. I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And to really make it bad, his daughter agrees. I've wondered if she put up a bit of a fight about it, if he would have avoided the scenario, but she did not. There are five ways this is ironic. First, God's law warned that this would happen. Did you know that? This is where Torah law comes really into play. God's law warned about this. Look, when the Lord your God annihilates the nations before you, which you are entering to take possession of, and you drive them out and live in their land, be careful not to be ensnared by their ways after they've been destroyed by you. Do not inquire about their gods, asking, how do these nations worship their gods? I'll also do the same. You must not do the same to the Lord your God, because they practice detestable acts, which the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Be careful to do everything I command you. Do not add anything to it. Do not take anything from it. A proper understanding of Torah would have told Jephthah that God would not have wanted his sacrifice. It gets worse. God's law actually provided a way out, too. This is where it really digs deep. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when somebody makes a special vow to the Lord that involves the assessment of people, if the assessment concerns a male from 20 to 60 years old, your assessment is 50 silver shekels, measured by the standard sanctuary shekel. If the person is a female, your assessment is 30 shekels. The law actually provided a way out of the vow that Jephthah was not aware of. This did not have to happen. The Lord never acknowledged the vow. Jephthah says, I have given my word and I can't take it back. The Lord never agreed to this. There was no conversation or dialogue between them. True to his name, Jephthah attempted to bargain with the Lord in the same manner as with the elders and the Ammonite king. God is not just a bigger version of ourselves. He's not just some bigger person that we can negotiate and bargain with. When he talked with the elders, he could get one up on them. When he talked to the Ammonite king, he could logic his way to victory. But when it comes to the Lord, he will not be had. Finally, God's law commands us to teach it to our children. This is perhaps the most heart-wrenching, ironic part of this. Take a look. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words, or the laws, that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. 
talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Repeat them to your children. What an ironic, tragic event. I have some big ideas here I'd like to toss your way. These are possible ones. When I was sitting down and I was trying to throw a big idea together, I thought of a few, and I just thought I'd share them all with you and get your opinion. Number one, let's be sure we get to know God rather than settling with simply knowing about him. Let's never forget to love and keep God's commands. Let's not get swept up in the ways of the world and forget who we are. In other words, let's make sure we don't throw our sponges in the mud. Let's make sure we're constantly refreshing ourselves through community at church, through the reading of our word. We cannot be like the world, church. The church is not the world. It is not. Now, I debated on these big ideas. They're all so good, but I thought of one. I thought of one big idea that just wraps them all together. Let's be an earnest Bible-reading church, valuing his word above all other words the world has to offer. We value his word, not our own, right? Interestingly, Jephthah had two months before he sacrificed his daughter. She went away and mourned for two months. And what did he do over that time? It's not stated, but one thing he definitely did not do is read Torah. He did not consult God's word. Perhaps consulting the elders wouldn't have helped either because they asked Jephthah to lead them. Perhaps they too got what they deserved. What a spiritually bankrupt situation. Thank goodness our God will never be manipulated by human demands. It may appear as if God actually answered Jephthah's prayer by giving him victory over the Ammonites. Uh, Jephthah thought so. But the Lord gave the victory because as the judge of all the earth, he defended his people and he brought defeat on the Ammonite king. Jephthah's vow was unnecessary. It was rash. It was pagan. God worked out of pure grace on Israel's behalf. This should cause us to examine how we talk to God. When we pray, are we sometimes hiding personal manipulations? Sometimes as Christians, we accidentally slip into the lie that God owes us something for not following him, or for following him. Until we recognize that God is not obligated by our actions to do anything for us, until we recognize that whatever he does is on the basis of grace alone, we will be frustrated. We will be frustrated with our relationship with him. We don't worship him because of what we can get out of him. We only worship him because he's God. In other words, not my will, but yours be done. Did you notice that not even one time does the Lord speak with Jephthah in this entire story? On one hand, this is a sign of just how far the judges have fallen. On the other hand, I wonder, personally, if this is because the Lord has already said what needed to be said. We've pulled up several references to scripture this morning that directly speak towards Jephthah's situation. Rather than giving our word to the Lord, like Jephthah did, can we recognize that the Lord has already given his word to us? Can we do that? 
So there's this final bit, but we're going to go very quick here. Jephthah versus the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites were a part of his own country. They were adjacent to him. They had heard that Jephthah did this, and they weren't invited. They wanted to come along, but they didn't know it was happening. Jephthah tried to reason with them and say, it was a big situation. I was busy. I'm sorry I couldn't get to you. They weren't having it. So what they did is they threatened to take away his house and his headship, to literally burn his house down and remove him as a head. This is the one thing the elders promised Jephthah if he would deliver them. Also, it's the same house his daughter came running out of. The story is riddled with irony. Jephthah had a hard time reining this in, but in the end, he did subdue them. He did it in a humiliating way. Just like he was excluded from Israel, he is exclusionary now. As Younger puts it, hurt people hurt people. The exclusion came all the way back around full circle. As we begin closing here and thinking of communion, I want to bridge the gap. We've talked about how judges was a lawless time, and we've taken a look at how the law could speak quite literally into Jephthah's story. If only he would have read it. Did you know that the law is important still? The law is important now. Let me read this to you. We have Jeremiah. As I read this, listen to what's going on. Listen to what's happening. This very law that Jephthah ignored, the Lord's doing something with it for us now. I will conclude with this reading. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, a new covenant, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jephthah does the unthinkable. He ends up sacrificing his own daughter because he's drifted really far from what his God would have desired for him and his family. Uh, he's done this because he doesn't know the heart of his God. Not truly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that God does not delight in sacrifice or